Well, good morning. It is a joy to be back before you. Um, just to give an update on where we're at. I have, uh, I'm still doing seminary. I have eight classes left and I am counting those down with tally marks because uh, it has been, uh, it has been a, an adventure. Um, Lindsay and I are doing well. We are working, I believe the last time I was here was in July. So I started a new job in Russellville, which means I don't drive an hour and a half every day to work, uh, which is always great to get time back. Um, but we're doing well. We're, um, as I said, we have a year left of prep. And so um, we're starting to get into that anxious limbo phase of we can't really uh, start looking for positions, but we are about to start looking. And so we are waiting for the waiting to be done, as my wife likes to put it. Um, but we're excited and, and we're, um, we're doing quite well. Um, our text this morning uh, is in the book of Numbers. It's Numbers chapter 21. And I'll be reading uh, only verses 4 through 9. Uh, but I will explain uh, kind of what I'm doing after we read and pray. From Mount Har they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water. And we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned. We have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he may take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at this bronze serpent and live. This is God's holy and inspired word. Let's pray. Father, we come to gather as your people after a long week that for many of us is tiring either physically or emotionally or mentally or all of the above. And on this day, you have called us to rest, to rest in the finished work of your son, to rest from our cares and to take joy in your good and gracious providence. And so, Father, I ask that this, this message be a blessing to your people. That your spirit move, that your spirit be among us. That we hear it for our salvation and for our growth in the gospel. We ask all these things in Jesus' name and for his kingdom's sake. Amen. One of the privileges I have of being an intern of Presbytery is I get to see and do things that I don't normally get to do uh, just in my day-to-day -day life. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, we had Presbytery, and it was awesome. I love getting to go to Presbytery, one, because I take off work and I don't have to do work that whole day. Um, 
usually I get to go to a really interesting place. Um, this past or a couple weeks ago, we went to Hot Springs. And so I got to uh, not drive to Memphis, which is awful when you're driving through East Arkansas. And um, I got to go see my parents because they live in Hot Springs. And I got to get home in time for supper and spend time with my family. And so I was like, this is awesome. We should have Presbyterian Arkansas all the time. It's not going to happen anytime soon, but that's okay. Uh, sometimes I get asked to preach supply like today or, uh, re or on the 6th, I'm going to Jonesboro and I don't ever get to go to Jonesboro, uh, just in life. Like I, I've been there twice and I don't even realize that I have really been there all that often. And then sometimes I get a text from my mentor to try to press me just a little bit and stretch me and challenge me. In this way, where uh, he said that when we're looking at, my, at the preaching calendar and anything that may come up, he said, I want you to preach through a book in one sermon, which is hard to do because he assigned books. And, and that's fine. I, I'll, I'll do what he asks. But he didn't assign like Jude or First John or just John. I got Ezekiel, or like today, Numbers. It's a challenge. And, and if you're like me, Numbers isn't a book that you would be like, I'm so excited to just dig through the whole book of Numbers. And if I'm honest, it's where my Bible in a year reading plan dies. By some of your lives I get, yeah. Because it, early in the chapters, the, the descriptive of the census and, and the camp and set it up this way. And, and we're very tempted to get to these and go, will you get on already? When do we get to the good part? Or maybe we're tempted to say, you know what, let's just skip it. Let's just move on. There's nothing here. We get it. You're, you count the people. There's some law. You're in the desert. You count them again, Right? But the Bible is one story. It, it goes all the way back to the basic narrative of Scripture. God is establishing his kingdom through his Christ according to his covenants. And it all points to Jesus. Which means there aren't throwaway books. I, I don't get to treat passages or even the book of Numbers like that front and back piece of bread that my grandma always made me eat, but I never, we always skip. I don't get to just toss them out when I'm done with the good bread. And notice what Paul writes for us in 1 Corinthians 10. He says, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and we're all baptized into Moses and in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us. That we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. 
We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. You see, this is a Christian book. The book of Numbers, as often as, as much of a trepidation as we might come to it, is for us. That this account of people going through the desert is really that they really lived and really, really it serves as a picture for us. And so we can we can glean a lot from this book. And our text this morning, in Numbers 21, it's just a really small picture of the whole book. We're going to see a lot of repetition. And so my plan is to use our passage to walk through the whole book of Numbers and still get you out on lunch for plenty, a plenty amount of time. So we're going to move quick. We're going to be flipping all over the place, but we're going to, it'll make sense. Because I want to look at this through four actors this morning. That we'll see through the narrative and what that means for us. And the first actor we should see is God himself. The book begins still at Sinai after God has given his law in Exodus and Leviticus. And God is here among his people. He has brought them from Egypt with great and mighty works, brought them over the Red Sea, and demonstrated his glory on the mountain. And the story of Numbers is God walking and dwelling with his people in the wilderness. He does not get, and notice, he does not get them from Egypt and save them from their bondage and get them across the sea and get them to the mountain. And after giving his law, say, okay, you got it from here. I'll see you in the promised land. He does not abandon them. He does not put his name on them and then tell them to figure it out. Rather, he walks with them. He dwells with them and, and guides them. Early in the book, God lays out how the camp is to be laid out. And you have you know, three tribes on the east and three tribes on the west and so on and, and such forth. But, but in the very center is the tabernacle. And he does not say, hey, hey, put that tent a quarter mile out. Because y'all, I don't want to be so close. I don't want to be in the middle of it. Y'all walk to me a little bit. No, God's desire and design is to be in the middle of camp. He, he dwells with them and over them in the cloud and in the fire. And when he moves, they follow, and it is ultimately he who guides them where they go. Not only does he dwell with them, but he blesses them. The ironic blessing that's found in number six is, is a great summary of the Lord's delight of his people. That he blesses them and that, and that he keeps them, that he providentially cares for them. And throughout the narrative, he blesses them by giving them victory over 
insurmountable odds against kings that come against them. In fact, the, the parts of 21 that we didn't read are three accounts of three kings who is, they're just trying to pass through the land and kings come up and say, no, we can fight about it though. And God gives them victory time and time again. And when a fourth king pays Balaam the prophet multiple times, hey, you come and curse them because maybe we can turn this around because they keep winning. Instead, Balaam turns the whole thing around and, and God blesses them through him. He also provides for them. Every day the Lord blesses them with manna to eat, which is like a, what we see is like a sweet cake that they can sustain themselves. And when they complain about the bread, he sends them quail. When they're thirsty in the wilderness, he brings water from rocks. Their, their shoes don't wear out. The whole way through the wilderness, he keeps them. He preserves them. And so often I think that we forget that we too are his people. We forget that because of all the chaotic busyness that we live in, that he guides us. We forget with all the weariness that life just brings on a day-to-day basis that he cares for us. He meets our needs day to day. We lose sight because of all the things that just pick at us and frustrate us in the normal course that, that God walks with us. And in the wilderness of grief or pain or heartache or poverty, he, we forget that he's not abandoned us, that he is not waiting in that great getting up morning that we will one day get to. And says, no, when you make it, I'll see you then. That's not in his nature. Yes, we may look around and find ourselves walking and wondering in what feels like just a constant desert of emptiness and hoping for a better day. But even as we walk the Christian life, the Lord does not wait for that day to arrive. He blesses us. And he keeps us because we are his covenant people. But what we also see in Numbers is the constant mention of sacrifice and, and worship laws. It's, it's very Levitical. And here in the early narrative, he continues to give laws and, and guidelines. And he, he, he lays out, you know, when you build the tabernacle, build it this way. When you take it down, take it down this way. When you have a holy day, you should do sacrifices this exact way. And the whole point of that is pushing us to see that the Lord is holy. And if I'm honest, that's, part, that's, that's the whole part that is so difficult to get across of the holiness of God, without just saying he's holy. Because I'm stuck with the impossibility of the task of trying to describe it. Sproul writes that it is the way in which he is most unlike 
us. That he is without mark or blemish or fault in his nature or in his being. That he is the definition of righteousness. That he is self-sufficient. That he is the very definition of holiness, the perfection of righteousness. That the, the angels surround him and declare, as Isaiah records, that he is holy, holy, holy. And when we see God declaring his law and saying, no, I will be worshipped this way. Or these are the people who will lead my people. This is to show that he is perfect and righteous. That he does all that is good. And it is not something that we can bear. For Isaiah himself saw it. So, so the, the infinite holiness of God and can only say, I'm destroyed. What we see very quickly is that while God is holy, we are not. While God is perfect and blameless, we are not. While he is good, we are wicked. He is pure and we're the defiled ones. And it's in this book where the law sometimes just rubs us the wrong way and, and gets in our face in a way that we don't like. In chapter 5, God directs Moses that those who were unclean because of leprosy or, or discharge or, or had touched something dead had to be put outside the camp. Now, some of that is common sense. I don't think I have to explain quarantine to any of us. Diseases spread quickly in a very tight-knit place. We may think, outside the whole camp? You, you won't fellowship with them? They, they can't even be in their tent? That's harsh. That's unfair. But, it should, but because God dwells in the camp, he cannot abide what is unclean. It does rub us the wrong way, because it's supposed to. It shows us that we too are sinful. Our catechism teaches that sin is any transgression of or lack of conformity to God's law. That God is not slack or hold those who transgress his law lightly. He cannot. Because he is holy, he must judge sin. This brings us to the second actor in our narrative, the people. It does not take us very long to see that these very people who have been delivered from bondage and crossed over the sea and been benefactors of God's blessing are fickle. At the end of chapter 10, they leave Sinai and begin their way to the promised land. And chapter 11 starts... Just like this. And the people complained in the hearing of the Lord. And this is what they do. The whole book. In Numbers 11. Now the rabble that was among them had a strong craving. And the people of Israel also wept again. And said, oh that we had meat to eat. 
We remember the fish that we ate in Egypt that cost nothing, and the cucumbers and the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. And they decide very quickly that slavery and vegetables are better than God and freedom in a new land that's their own. Later on in the book, Miriam and Aaron outright just oppose Moses and try to usurp his place. We see in our main text, again, the people complain about the food option. That there is no food and what is there is worthless. And, and they even say, have you brought us out of Egypt to kill us? Was that the whole plan? To just get us out here so that you could kill us here? But it isn't just that they complain constantly. It's that they just rebel. Korah is a Levite who attempts to turn everyone against Moses. And God punishes him. Just splits the earth open. And it swallows him. Then the next day the people go, hey, that went really badly. We should do that too. And even when they get to the land, when they're right there, they rebel against God. And he says, fine. Then you don't get to come in. And it just, it's astounding as I studied that it's almost comical if it wasn't so sad that these people who were brought out of bondage and crossed the sea and saw God every day in the fire and pillar and had food every day and saw God at Sinai and the thunders and the rumblings and the, the tempest storm rebel again and again. And, and it's not just the sinning that we, we sometimes go, ah, you got me. I, no, it's willful rebellion. It's active, I'm, no, it's active, just I'm done with you. And eventually I got to a point when reading, that I just got mad. And I said, would you get it together? Like, like we do this the whole book. We've done it time after time after time. You get mad, you rebel, you get punished, you repent. We, We've done this already. Stop complaining. Stop griping. Stop, as my grandmother would say, being a heathen and get it together. Just stop it. But as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10, now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. It's us. If you're trying to find yourself in the book of Numbers, it's here. Because we too complain about God's good and gracious providence. We grumble against our leaders, be they political or in the church or in our homes. 
Because whatever decision they make, and that's, that wasn't my choice, is automatically the worst choice ever. We sin so often. The Bedeon Bayway writes that sin is a moral evil, a negation of what is right. It is a rebellion against God, and therefore he calls it cosmic treason. This is the warning of the book of Numbers for us. Later on, the people tie themselves to the Moabites and, and worship their gods. And isn't it funny? It wasn't, wasn't because the statues were nice. It wasn't with a frown that they were tempted. No, sin has, <coughs> sin is enticing. It looks appealing to us. It says to us, do you remember the melons and the cucumbers and the fish and the garlic? Hey, forget about the bondage. Ignore that part. But do you remember how good the food was? We may mask it or shroud it in terms of acceptability, but it is treason. We may justify it or downplay it, but it's still rebellion. We may appeal to, to our times and culture and say, no, 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 it's, it's different now. We're smarter than that now. We've ascended to a better place. We got it under control. But sin threatens to undo us. It threatens to break us. So then we must be diligent, as Paul instructs us, to flee from it. Because what we see in Numbers is that sin has its just consequences. In our main reading, the people complain and the Lord sends fiery serpents to punish them. And this is always the result of sin. They sin and God justly punishes their sin. They doubt God before entering the land and they're forced to wander. Wrath and destruction is the only real result of sin, no matter what vegetable garden it may bring in the moment. That death is the only real fruit it bears. But when faced with their sin, they turn to our third actor, Moses. He is the one whom God has used to bring them out. He is the one leading them and, and hearing their complaints directly. He is the one they often rebel against. He shoulders their complaints and their treason and he stands before the people on behalf of God. And we see this in our text that they rebelled against God and against Moses. But he's also the one who they come to when they have sinned. Note that the one that they said, have you brought us up out of Egypt to kill us? They immediately turn to and say, no, no, you pray to the Lord because we've sinned. No, you go to him because we can't. Moses stands before God on behalf of the people. Moses mediates for them. So we've seen the holiness of God and the sinfulness of the people. This is the mediation of Moses. 
And we're tempted to think that, that the wandering was the bad part. It's harsh punishment. But notice that how God originally answers the question. That when they rebel at the promised land, he says, how long will this people despise me? How long will they not believe in me? In spite of all the signs that I've done among them, I will strike them with pestilence and disinherit them, and I will make of you a great nation mightier than they. The God's wrath is always kindled against sin. We, we see that there. But notice what Moses does then the Egyptians will hear of it. For you brought up this people in your might from among them, and they will tell the inhabitants of this land that they have heard that you, O Lord, in the midst of the people could not keep them. It is because the Lord was not able to bring this people into the land that he swore to give them, that he has killed them in the wilderness. Moses says, for the sake of your name, don't do that. For, for the sake of you, who you are, relent. But notice what he goes on to say. Now please let the power of the Lord be great as you have promised, saying the Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression. Please pardon the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your steadfast love, just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt until now. The mediation of Moses is based on the covenant promises of God himself. Hey, but you're a covenant God. This is why we find forgiveness of sins as well, because God keeps his covenant promises. But we would be tempted to think, well, then we just need a guy. We, we, we just need a new mediator. And we're close. But before we think that all we need is just another person, notice that Moses is also a sinner. That, that Moses doesn't cut it either. And so we need more than just a person to pray for us. More than just a person to turn us back. No, no, we need someone both like us and holy. Which brings us to our final actor. who's hidden in the book, but is clearly seen. We see Jesus. Thought the whole book he's hinted at. He is God and so therefore in, is in and of himself holy. But he's the priest who goes out to those who are unclean and declares them clean and brings, brings us back into the camp. He, as he says of himself in John 3, is the serpent that is lifted up. He is the rock that we drink from. He, he is our priest who, by his death, makes us clean. He is the living bread that they ate. He mediates between us and God. He is what Moses always pointed to. 
He is the true and better Moses. He is both the priest and sacrifice for our sins so that we are accepted. He's through the whole book. So yet we need this book. It's referenced in John. It's referenced in Corinthians. It's referenced in Hebrews. He's everywhere. He is the better Moses. He is the one who's promised. He's the one who makes us righteous. And goes before God on our behalf and says, no. Save them and pardon them based on your covenant promises. So then, hear the good news of the gospel for you this morning. And if you haven't heard anything, hear this part. The Lord Jesus Christ is our true and better mediator. He has been lifted up on a cross and died for your sins. And by faith alone, looking to him, your sins are forgiven today. Not a future you, not a better you, not the you that makes it to the promised land. No, today, in the wilderness, Christ stands and is lifted up on your behalf. And you're forgiven. So then what should you do this morning? It's very simple. If you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as the people did in their rebellion. Look to him. See him. Find his rest. Saving faith, seeing and resting on Christ alone is what's offered to you today. So look to him. And second, follow and trust him. See his gracious providence for you in regular ordinary means. See how he keeps us as we wander ourselves as wilderness pilgrims. And take heart, because the Lord dwells among us, his people. That he will bring us all the way home. Because that's how the story ends. We make it all the way home. Let's pray.